short rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I have the honor to be your host, James Hauser, and I hope you had an excellent Thanksgiving if you celebrated it. Last week, I finished my first series about the Jacobite Wars, the 45, and the Battle of Culloden. But there are some little supplements to the broader story that I want to tell. So I have run off a pair of short rounds dealing with various aspects of the 45. I've released them both at the same time, so you don't have to listen to them in order. Just listen to them as you want. This short round talks about the life and times of a Scottish Highland clan chief, the infamous Simon Fraser, 11th Lord Lovett, chief of Clan Fraser. He was a major player in all the events I talked about through November, including the 15 and the 45. I didn't really have a chance to squeeze him in next to the rest of the narrative, but today I'm going to talk all about him. He's not just an interesting, kind of scummy, kind of disgusting human being. He serves as a good example of the challenges that many clan leaders faced throughout the Jacobite period. This is one guy's ground-level narrative all the way from the Glorious Revolution to the aftermath of Culloden. And I will warn you up front, do not sympathize with this guy. Do not root for him. He is an enormous jerk. And you'll find out why very soon. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean, the content is not. With a trigger warning today for sexual assault. I'm serious about this trigger warning, by the way, dead serious. If you have any serious issues hearing about that, I'm not going to be gross about it, but feel free as a bird to skip this short round entirely. All my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story of a nasty, backstabbing human being who nevertheless shouldn't be an unknown soldier. So let's do this thing. Simon Fraser was born on January 5th, 1667 to Thomas Fraser of Beaufort and Sibylla MacLeod. Thomas Fraser was the younger son of the chief of Clan Fraser, and this meant that he was a ranking noble of one of the strongest Highland clans. But neither he nor his son Simon was in line to be the next chief. Under normal circumstances, Simon Fraser never would have inherited the titles of Chief Fraser and Lord Lovett. But as we have seen, the Highlands in the 18th century were far from normal. Clan Fraser was the most powerful clan in the region of Inverness. The traditional Fraser territory stretched for almost 500 square miles to the west and south of Inverness, large, relatively fertile regions of open land along the Highland Line. From their stronghold at Castle Downey, the chiefs of Fraser ruled an area half the size of Rhode Island. By the 1400s, they also held the title of Lord Lovett, a Scottish noble title. Fraser chiefs had to be strong, skillful, formidable, and resilient to survive in the cutthroat world of Highland politics. Unfortunately, the Fraser chief in the 1680s and 1690s was Hugh Fraser, 9th Lord Lovett, Simon's cousin and a very weak individual. Hugh was under the control of the rival clan Mackenzie and their allies, the very powerful Murray family, who forced him into a marriage with Amelia Murray. She was the sister of John Murray, 1st Duke of Athol, one of the most powerful men in Scotland. For the record, these are the same Murrays. This is Lord George Murray's dad. 
The Murrays and McKenzies had launched a very complicated legal scheme to steal the Fraser titles and lands from the original Fraser line. And the legal details here are mind-boggling. I'm not going to get into it. There's theology, then there's theoretical physics, then there's Scottish common law, and that one's the most complicated. Simon Fraser was at college in Aberdeen, 21 years old and drinking and partying as so many rich young men do in college, when the Glorious Revolution came and William and Mary rose to power. Simon's older brother Alexander, his father's original son and heir, rallied the Frasers to fight for Viscount Dundee and was mortally wounded at the Battle of Killacranky. Simon, who nursed his brother's wounds on his deathbed, always had a guilt complex over the loss of his elder brother. In 1696, Simon's clan chief Hugh Fraser died at age 30 after a night of binge drinking. Normally, the succession would go to his cousin Thomas and then to Simon. He had no living male heirs. But the Murrays and Mackenzie's scheming tried to arrange it so the titles would go to whoever married Hugh Fraser's only living child, the 10-year-old Amelia Murray. So in theory, Thomas Fraser now became chief of Clan Fraser, 10th Lord Lovett. But the Murrays and the Mackenzies disputed the succession. Simon and his father waded into an enormous, costly legal battle to get their lands and rights back they believed belonged to them. But the Murrays just had too many connections in Edinburgh. Simon, nevertheless, was determined to keep the ancient Fraser lands from falling into the hands of the Murrays and Mackenzies. We gotta say a little bit something about Simon Fraser at this point. He was six feet tall, famously strong and broad and lantern-jawed, with intelligent eyes and sort of a perpetual smirk on his face. Simon's character was extremely ambitious, devious, and proud. Simon had one overriding priority throughout his life. The advancement of his family and his clan, which he not coincidentally identified with himself. Everything he did fed directly into that motive, and he had no limits to what he would do, who he would betray, who he would hurt to make them happen. When John Murray, Duke of Athol, prevented Simon from pursuing his case through the Scottish courts, he tried something else. He went to Amelia Murray, his cousin's widow, and tried to negotiate with her for the hand of her, well, ten-year-old daughter. The Duke of Athol found out and arranged to have the girl betrothed to a dude named Alexander Fraser. This guy had no relation to the main Fraser line, but he was someone the Duke of Athol could control, a guy who was like going to be his stooge in, in their plan to get the Fraser lands. Well, Simon had tried all the legal ways to win. It was time to try some illegal ones. When Alexander Fraser came to the Fraser lands to rally support for the marriage, Simon had him kidnapped thrown in prison, then built a gallows outside the prison and threatened to hang him unless he withdrew his marriage proposal. This succeeded in scaring off Alexander Fraser, but also infuriated the Duke of Athol, who declared Simon and his father in open rebellion against the crown. They were trying to kidnap what his family had rightfully stolen. Before the government could do anything to stop him, Simon went one step too far. Way, way, way too far. He decided that if Amelia the daughter wasn't available, he would settle for Amelia the mother. His cousin's widow, Athol's sister, Lady Lovett, was still living in the family stronghold at Castle Downey. In 1697, Simon asked her to marry him so he could secure the estates, and she said no. Well, there are ways around that. 
Amelia was dragged to the altar in tears as the minister, refusing to meet her eye, pronounced them man and wife to the wailing of bagpipes. It had been a non-consensual marriage, and it was a non-consensual wedding night. Even if I don't use foul language in this podcast, there's no way I'm getting around what happened. Simon raped Amelia, with the bagpipes blaring outside their window to drown out her screaming. I told you not to root for this guy. Do not root for this guy. This was not only a terrible, inhuman, unforgivable act, it was also an enormous mistake. Simon had arranged the forced marriage to try and gain control over the family estates, and he let Amelia go free when the wedding night was over. But the Duke of Athol understandably hit the roof when he learned that Simon had forcibly married, then raped his sister, and had Simon and his father declared outlaws, wanted dead or alive. And could you blame him? They were forced to take refuge on the Isle of Skye. There, Thomas Fraser died, leaving Simon Fraser as the chief of Clan Fraser and 11th Lord Lovett, or at least claiming to be. Lord Lovett, as we will now call him, was still an outlaw, and he carried on a low-key guerrilla war against the Murrays up in the Highlands. What he really needed, though, was a royal pardon. After he was briefly pardoned and unpardoned, and then had a bunch more legal shenanigans happen, Lovett had to flee Britain entirely to escape all the people coming for his head. In the meantime, the Murrays succeeded in marrying Amelia Fraser, the daughter, not the mom, to Alexander Mackenzie, who took the name Alexander Mackenzie of Fraserdale so he could say, yeah, I'm totally the chief of Clan Fraser. They moved into Castle Downey and took over the Fraser estates. Lovett couldn't go home, couldn't get a pardon, and all his allies had cut him loose. He had only one place to turn. So this was the caliber of character who sailed for France and made his way to the Jacobite court in exile. This was the first time that Lovett switched sides, and it would not be the last. See, Lord Lovett would play both sides for the rest of his life, and there were a lot of times when it would come back to burn him. But he was out for number one, and would ally with anyone and everyone who would help him gain and keep his land and titles. If little green men had landed, he would paint himself green and swear fealty as long as they gave him back his lands and titles. His heart was aligned with the Jacobite cause, maybe, But any principle he had was easily sacrificed if it got him ahead. For instance, when he arrived at the Jacobite court, he figured out quickly that Catholics were more in favor than Protestants. So he immediately ran off, converted to Catholicism, came back and said, look, I'm a Catholic now, like me. Like, seriously, you just change religion on a whim to get a little bit of political favor. Lovett laid out a plan for a French-backed Jacobite rising in the Scottish Highlands to the Jacobite court, making himself out to be much more important than he was. When Lovett got the chance to meet Louis XIV in person, he spun a long story about how he had been selected by the elites of Scotland to come beg the Sun King for his support in overthrowing the new order. Which was a lie. He'd been kicked out of Britain after he uh, kidnapped and raped a woman. So the French and the Jacobite court decided to take a chance on Lovett and sent him back to Britain so he could feel out support for an uprising. Lovett snuck across the English Channel in disguise and immediately got in touch with Queen Anne's court offering to give up information about the Jacobite court in exchange for a pardon and the restoration of his lands and titles. He also tried to forge a letter implicating the Duke of Athol, his arch nemesis, in a Jacobite plot. 
None of this worked. Soon British spies were hunting him down, and Lovett had to escape back to France, where Louis XIV repaid him for all his double-crossing by throwing him into house arrest. Yep, play both sides, you get burned. Lovett hung out in house arrest for over a decade. No one trusted him, not Queen Anne's government, not the French court, not the Jacobite court, and could you blame them? But even though Lovett wasn't there to actually do the job of a chief, the Frasers continued to send him money and support. Their loyalty to their exiled scumbag of a leader really goes to show just how much cultural and traditional power the clan chiefs had. But how the heck was Lord Lovett ever going to get his land and titles back? How was he going to liberate Clan Fraser, who were still loyal to their beloved backstabbing criminal double-crossing rapist clan chief from the Mackenzies and the Murrays? Enter the Fifteen. As soon as George I came to power and rebellion started in Britain, Lovett slipped back across the channel in disguise and offered his services to the new order. The Fifteen presented Lovett, who really should have had no chance of ever getting back into power, with his chance. His old enemies, the Mackenzies and most of the Murrays, had aligned themselves with the Jacobites. So Lovett got permission to run north, raise the Fraser clan against the Jacobites, and open a second front against the Fifteen. In October 1715, Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett, returned to his clan lands for the first time in 15 years. Alexander Mackenzie of Fraserdale, the man who now claimed to be chief of Clan Fraser, had led 300 Fraser Highlanders south to join the Earl of Mar. But as soon as Lovett arrived, he rallied his clan to support the government, and these Frasers immediately deserted and ran north to join their quote-unquote true chief. See, it really did work this way with the clan chiefs. They had all this deep cultural power that came from the bloodline itself. That was what people believed in, not whatever the law said. It's the, it's the contrast between tradition and law that the Highlands functioned on. In Lovett's own words, There was nothing done for the government till I took arms. I obliged the rebels to desert this town. All my people, whom Mackenzie of Fraserdale forced by open violence to go with him to Mars camp, deserted all and came and joined me when they heard I was in my country. Lovett led the men of Clan Fraser to capture the city of Inverness on November 12, 1715, one day before the Battle of Sheriff Muir. This meant that when Mar lost that battle, he couldn't retreat to the Highlands, since Lovett had boxed him in from the west. Lord Lovett's timely intervention had helped defeat the Fifteen, and this, finally, opened the door to a pardon. And Lovett, after everything he'd done, got everything he wanted. A royal pardon, official recognition as 11th Lord Lovett, and the restoration of his lands. He was even given a commission to raise an independent company to support the government of the Highlands, one of the original units that would later form the Black Watch. Though he would be tangled up in legal troubles for the rest of his life, it was a pretty crazy comeback for a dude who had no reason to expect and didn't really deserve one. Throughout the 1720s and 1730s, Lovett settled into his role as chief. He had a traditionalist sense of his rights and duties. He ruled the Fraser lands like a dictator, demanding tribute and dispensing charity in the way that chiefs always had. He kept an open table at Castle Downey for any Fraser clansman, and he handed out coins to poor clansmen whenever he traveled through his territory. As clan chiefs go, he was pretty decent, even if he was an absolutely terrible human being. 
Lovett also found time to raise a family. His original quote-unquote marriage being conveniently forgotten, he wed Margaret Grant in 1717. He seemed to genuinely love her, even if he terrorized their children. Margaret gave him five children, including his son and heir, Simon Fraser, before she passed away in 1729. Next, Lovett decided to ally himself with the powerful Campbell clan by marrying the sweet young Primrose Campbell. She was 23, he was 66. Primrose was not on board with this, and even though the marriage went through and she had one child with him, in 1738 she voted with her feet and ran off to quote-unquote visit family and just never came back. And can you blame her? One of Lovett's most powerful and important neighbors was our old friend, Duncan Forbes of Culloden. Forbes and Lovett were the biggest frenemies in the Inverness region. Forbes had been Lovett's lawyer and had settled most of his outstanding legal issues by 1733. But by the mid-1730s, Forbes and Lovett were competing for influence over the Northern Highlands. Though Forbes wove a web of connections around many of the Highland chiefs, Lovett refused to be drawn into the web. He was trying to build a network and alliance of Highland chiefs to resist government intervention. He stayed independent, an unknown quantity that Forbes was always trying to pin down with some obligation or contract. Lovett's falling out with Forbes was the beginning of his problems with the government. This was partly because Lovett had been communicating with the Jacobite court in exile this entire time. He had only gotten his titles and lands back by siding with the new order with the Hanoverians, and yet he was still trying to play both sides. Most of Britain suspected Lord Lovett of treason, and though he was never convicted, no one trusted him, and can you blame them? Sensing that the government was trying to curb the rights and privileges of the clan chiefs, Lovett ramped up his Jacobite activities after 1737. When the government got some evidence of his treason, they removed him from command of his independent company in 1740. I mean, can you blame them? Well, Lovett did, regarding it as a huge insult and later citing it as the main reason he supported the 45. Even though, you know, him being a Jacobite was the reason they had fired him in the first place. So when the 1740s rolled around, Lovett was in deep with the Jacobite cause. He was one of the many people in contact with the Jacobite court and with Charlie when Charlie arrived in France, telling Charlie not to come to Scotland unless he brought guns, troops, and money. By this point, though, Lovett was in his late 70s, and even though he had owed everything he had to the Hanoverians, he felt they just hadn't respected him enough. He would play both sides until the very last minute, and then some. So now we are caught up to the 45. Simon Fraser, 11th Lord Lovett, was 78 years old when Charlie landed at Moidert, and he was one of the many Highland clan chiefs who now had to make a decision, but not if he could help it. Lovett immediately sent a letter to Duncan Forbes informing him of the prince's landing and assuring him of his absolute loyalty. He sent another letter to Prince Charles assuring him of his absolute loyalty. He sent a third letter to Chief Donald Cameron of Lochiel, and this one probably comes closest to how he really felt. Look to yourselves, for you may expect many a sour face and sharp weapon in the South. I'll aid when I can, but my prayers are all I can give at present. 
My service to the prince, but I wish he had not come here so empty-handed. Silver would go far in the highlands. I send this by you and Fraser, whom I have charged to give it to yourself. For were Duncan to find it, it would be my head to an onion. See, the 45 had come, and after leading the Jacobite court on for the last 30 years, after playing both sides his entire life, Lovett had gotten himself into the position where he had to choose. He had promised to come out and support the Jacobites, but he believed in his heart that the 45 would fail. The new order had given him his land and titles back, but he never believed in their cause to begin with. There was also the fact that the Murrays were allied with Charlie, and Lovett hated the Murrays. They were his arch nemesis, and they hated him. Remember, for good reason. He had raped Lord George Murray's Aunt Amelia 50 years ago, and that's not something anyone forgets, much less feuding Scottish families. So the Fiery Cross was sent out over the Fraser lands. Almost a thousand of Lord Lovett's clansmen rallied to Castle Downey, armed themselves, and began training, and no one knew which side they would join. Duncan Forbes, Bonnie Prince Charlie, everyone watched Lord Lovett with anxiety. He was just waiting to see which way the wind blew. A big question mark hung over Lovett's name throughout the summer and autumn of 1745. I think I mentioned in episode 13 that Charlie tried to have Duncan Forbes kidnapped because of the damage he was doing to the Jacobite cause, and it was Lovett's clansmen that did this. They tried to storm Culloden House on the night of October 15th and 16th, 1745, but they were driven off by the Earl of Loudoun's loyal Highlanders. Lord Lovett swore up and down that he'd had nothing to do with this plot. It was just terrible that someone tried to kidnap his old friend Duncan. Just terrible. See, Lovett was scheming to have plausible deniability. That way, if this whole thing went south, he could claim that he was innocent. He sent his son, the 19-year-old Simon Fraser, with the majority of the clan's fighting men to join the uprising. And immediately wrote to Duncan Forbes, claiming he had nothing to do with it, that his son had jumped the gun, and the Frasers had gone off against his orders. And Duncan Forbes wasn't buying any of this for a second. Everyone knew that Lord Lovett had complete and total power over his clan, and young Simon Fraser lived in terror of his father. No Fraser would dare try to kidnap Duncan Forbes, or march off to fight for Prince Charlie, without their chief's approval. They had waited 15 years for him to come back from exile, and as soon as he arrived, they dropped everything and did exactly as they were told. Lord Lovett had Clan Fraser into the palm of his hands. And if they were doing it, that meant he was doing it. After a life of double-crossing, backstabbing crimes, deceptions, plots, and plans, no one was buying the lies of Lord Lovett. On December 11th, 1745, the Earl of Loudoun arrived at Castle Downey in person to arrest the Fraser chief. When Lovett tried to put them off, saying he was too ill to travel, they manhandled him down the stairs and put him in prison in Inverness. But he was in prison for all of seven days, because on December 18th, a group of loyal Fraser clansmen broke him out and carried him off on their backs into the Scottish winter. He was hidden in Gorthlick House overlooking Loch Ness, where he would remain for the next few months. Lovett was still resting at Gorthlick House during the Battle of Culloden. The 1st Battalion of the Clan Fraser Regiment fought at the battle and suffered, of course, terrible casualties, with its colonel being executed at the orders of Hangman Hawley. But Lovett's son, Simon, was leading the 2nd Battalion to the battlefield as the battle was going on, and was only hours away when he heard of the defeat. 
There is some evidence that Simon Fraser switched sides literally hours after Culloden, since there was apparently some firing coming from the south side of Inverness in the aftermath of the battle, when no government forces were in the area. It's entirely possible that Lord Lovett's son switched sides literally as soon as he heard of the Battle of Culloden, and it may explain how he got away scot-free after the war. So I guess Dad told his son something. But his father would not get away scot-free. Charlie's first stop after escaping Culloden Battlefield was Gorthlick House, where Charlie and Lovett met for the first and last time. Lovett told Charlie to take to the hills, because he was going to. He'd done it once way back in the 1690s, and he could do it again. But Lovett's health prevented him from making the daring escapes and hiding in the crazy places that Charlie and other leaders did. The Duke of Cumberland's men ran Lovett down and captured him at Loch Marar on June 7th, 1746. The ancient Lord Lovett was placed in chains and brought back to England. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London to await his trial. Lovett was put on trial for high treason in March 1747. The trial was only going to end one way. I mean, this was a guy who had burned up his second, third, and fourth chances ages ago. He had switched sides more than anyone is usually allowed to switch sides. He had schemed and plotted and backstabbed and double-crossed and molested his way across the entire Jacobite era, and somehow he had managed to survive and even prosper. But in the 45, he tried to straddle the line one time too many. If he had committed early and hard to Charlie's cause, his large, powerful clan might have turned the tide in a rebellion that really could have succeeded. If he had committed to the government early on, he might have made the rebellion much shorter and much less damaging. His betrayals and waffling had ultimately made everything worse for his clan and his nation. Sometimes it really does pay to pick a side. Lovett's execution date was set for April 9, 1747. Even as he was praying and receiving communion and preparing for death, the 80-year-old chief stated that he had done everything he did as a Christian and as a Scottish patriot. This was the last and biggest lie of Lord Lovett, that he could be loyal to anything higher than himself. So many of the people of London had gathered to see Lovett die that his execution was delayed when one of the stands collapsed, killing nine spectators. When he heard this, Lovett cackled hysterically, which is supposedly the origin of the phrase, to laugh one's head off. The old man was led onto the stand. He needed the help of two men to climb the steps. He laid his head on the block. As the crowd chanted his name with glee, he murmured a prayer. Swish, chop, thud. The end. Simon Fraser, 11th Lord Lovett, one of the last great Highland chiefs, was the last man to be executed by public beheading on British soil. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Lovett's son, Simon Fraser, received a full pardon in 1750. Somehow, he ended up as a brigadier general in the British Army and led troops in Canada during the Seven Years' War. He even raised a regiment, the 78th Fraser Highlanders, to fight in the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution for the Hanoverian government. Though Simon Fraser was never allowed to resume the title of Lord Lovett, he remained the chief of Clan Fraser, though that title meant far less than it had under his father. The Fraser chiefs would have the title of Lord Lovett returned to them by 1854. 
So whatever Simon Fraser, 11th Lord Lovett, had done, and this was a lot of scummy, nasty, downright terrible stuff at times, he had preserved the titles of his clan and kept them in the family. The Highland Chiefs of Fraser would live on. On June 6, 1944, Brigadier General Simon Fraser, the 25th Chief of Clan Fraser and the 15th Lord Lovett, led his commando brigade onto Sword Beach on D-Day. He came ashore in full Highland regalia and ordered his bagpiper, Bill Millen, to play the boys ashore onto the beaches of Normandy. When his piper refused, citing a very sensible regulation from the war office that forbade bagpipers from playing in battle anymore, Lord Lovett said, Ah, but that's the English war office. You and I are both Scottish, and that doesn't apply. Millen played for his clan chief and his war band as they launched a Highland charge against their mortal foe, the Nazis. A clan chief doing clan chief things almost 200 years after the 45. Some echo of the ancient lords of the Highlands did survive Culloden after all. Thanks a bunch for listening today, as always. If you learned something, it's that you should just pick a side and stick with it, because people get tired of you trying to play on both teams. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just don't kidnap them and threaten to hang them if they don't listen. That's not good PR for me or you. I am always on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. Email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. If you got advice, I'd love to hear it. And if you haven't listened, don't forget the other short round I released today. Hear all about a much more admirable set of people than Lord Lovett. The unknown heroines, the women of the 45. Already on the feed on Unknown Soldiers.